hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to the show this week. It's been uh, a terrific week in terms of advancement for early treatment of COVID-19, as well as for victories in terms of patients and families having much more autonomy in their decision-making for uh, for their patients in the hospital. I had a, um, a personal patient relation anecdote to share. Uh, I have a family who has a genetic disease and I've seen them for years. And with each and every one of my patients in internal medicine and cardiology, uh, I inform them about prevention of COVID-19 and early treatment. I always wanna be notified early so I can get treatment started. I've treated each and every one of my patients who are at high risk and this family would be. And uh, it was one day last week where I got a text message from the mother who said the father was in the emergency room with COVID-19. And then I thought to myself, oh no, why didn't I know about this case earlier? Why didn't I hear from them? Well, she said that he presented with severe symptoms. His oxygen saturation was low early on, so they panicked. They went to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, they thought he was severe enough to be admitted. And my heart sank because I thought, oh my Lord, now now they won't be able to get all the outpatient treatment program that we had assembled and been so successful with over time. And uh, so uh, I gave her my quick instructions, you know, push for a monoclonal antibody, push for uh, these various drugs. And then, um, and then I went off to the airport. I had um, a, a follow-up text the next day and uh, from the wife who said, Dr. McCullough, good news. Um, my husband was admitted to a ICU doctor who follows you and he follows all of your uh, protocols and uh, direction on treatment. He received the monoclonal antibodies and he's receiving all the drugs in sequence that uh, you and your um, colleagues advise, and he's already better. And I told my wife about it, and we were uh, driving. We actually missed our exit. We had such a shock in um, in our reaction to that because it really is terrific to understand that people can change their views, that there, we can break this grip of therapeutic nihilism, and we can do much better uh, in terms of treatment of COVID-19, particularly on that outpatient to inpatient transition. And this came up on an interview recently. It was my first one with Chris Salcido uh, on Newsmax. And um, I think Chris hit some really important points. And then we went on to discuss some developments with the Nebraska Attorney General and the FDA. But let's listen. Take a look at this striking moment from Dr. Peter McCullough earlier this month while he presented at the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons Annual Meeting. I talked to one doctor one day, he goes, well, you can't treat patients. I said, well, what do you tell them? He goes, well, I tell them there's no treatment. Because these seniors go home, they're in their houses or apartments, they know their families can't go by, they know they have a potentially you know, fatal illness, and they have their doctors have basically abandoned them. They have nobody to call until that final moment of panic. Then they call. Then the virus spreads. 
Then they go in the hospital. And many don't make it out. This is wrong. A lot of doctors are feeling passionate about helping out their patients. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, doctor, thank you for your time. Uh, despite extensive evidence that therapeutics like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, monoclonal antibody, budesonide, are effective against the China virus as early treatments, many doctors are abandoning the science there and their patients to listen to what officials in government are saying. Why are they doing this? Well, Chris, thanks for having me on the show. Let me say that I'm emotionally charged on the issue of early treatment because so many of American seniors have been slaughtered by the virus without early treatment. Early treatment is supported by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, American Frontline Doctors, Frontline Critical Care Consortium, Truth for Health Organization. We basically have got strong support for early treatment. We've got monoclonal antibodies that work and need to be used and deployed. And then we have other drugs in sequence supported by randomized trials and observational data. The group of doctors treating patients early at home and preventing hospitalization and death is small, but it's growing and it needs to grow faster as Americans learn that treatment is possible. Uh, this last week, the Nebraska Attorney General stepped up big after I gave a presentation in Lincoln, Nebraska, saying, listen, support doctors in using hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin early in uh, treatment protocols uh, as standard evidence-based therapy to treat COVID-19. Yeah, I've never seen so much uh, anti-scientific push to stop early treatment. I've never seen anything like this. Now, I'm going to ask you about the breaking news here in a minute, but you and several other top doctors are filing a lawsuit against the Food and Drug Administration for refusing to release the data that led to their approval of the Pfizer vaccine. First, can you put to rest the rumor that the CDC indeed did approve the Pfizer vaccine? Because there are some out there who claim they never did. And why is it so important that we see the data that led to that approval? You know, first off, uh, it's important to understand that all the vaccines are under emergency use authorization and the FDA, not the CDC, makes that determination. What happened on August 23rd is that Pfizer was not approved by the FDA. It got a continuation of the emergency use authorization and then a legally distinct vaccine uh, that's held by, by, held by BioNTech, it's called Comirnaty, a German company, that got what's called a biological licensing agreement, meaning that BioNTech can move forward with that vaccine, but they have to negotiate the product uh, label. And there's a lot of post-marketing studies they have to do on myocarditis or heart inflammation uh, for individuals. Now, Dr. Gruber, who signed the letter to BioNTech, Comirnaty, she, she resigned within seven days of signing that letter. And to this day, America does not have uh, an approved FDA approved vaccine. And they know that because there's no package label disclosing the safety information. So that meeting on August 23rd created a false talking point. It went all the way up through the media to the president of the United States, who basically, unfortunately, uh, uh, re reiterated the false talking point that Pfizer was approved when in fact it's not. The consent forms haven't changed. The consent forms say it's either research or investigational. It depends on which state it is. It does not state that it's an approved vaccine. Now the lawsuit, the lead attorney is Adam Siri, and Adam has filed a lawsuit. Many doctors are on the list, including myself, and we're calling for a public health and medical professional transparency group to actually look over the data. 
And the reason why we need to look over the data is that we have a development program with the vaccines are now with the legacy variants. They were all tested with the original wild type, alpha, beta, and some gamma. Those, those variants are long gone, they're extinct. Now we're 99% Delta. We need to know, does the Pfizer vaccine have any effect on the Delta variant and where are the data? Understood. Understood. Okay, I, I got two questions and I've only got about 90 seconds to ask them. So the, I want to ask you about the breaking news we hit you with at the top here. You've got uh, now the single dose, uh, uh, single dose booster shots being available. And now that the FDA is saying, oh yeah, you can mix your shots, you can get shots here, shots there, shots everywhere. I, just as somebody who's not a medical professional, I, I feel cautious about this. Am I right in feeling cautious about this? You're right, because we have to follow the randomized trials. The randomized trials only test boosters as a booster to a prior product. We never mix and match products in randomized trials, and we definitely should not do it in practice. Okay, last question. Uh, there's a big push from uh, Mr. Joe Biden and others around this country to vaccinate uh, 5 to 12-year-olds, that are 5 to 11-year-olds. Just a simple question to you. If your child was being offered a vaccine, 5 to 11 years old, would you allow a 5 to 11 year old to receive any of these vaccines? Under no circumstances, because the risks outweigh the benefits. Tracy Hogue, University of California, Davis, published a child is much more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis, heart damage and inflammation due to these vaccines than taking their chances with COVID and, and being hospitalized with COVID. We can always treat children as a mild illness under no circumstances, vaccination for children. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you for your time, sir. We'll get you back on to continue this conversation. You can see how uh, skilled Chris is. He dropped me a text afterwards and uh, is a wonderful person in the media like so many people that I've met, and he's genuinely concerned about the direction of the country. Uh, so a couple of points. One, I just want to correct. I misspoke. It's Aaron Siri, a lead attorney out of New York, and Aaron's been a real uh, leader in uh, calling accountability on the government. Aaron has been the attorney that has had demand letters into the CDC to recognize natural immunity, and now a suit filed to Pfizer, basically for the entire data set on the Pfizer regulatory dossier so we can find out what in the world does Pfizer really know about this vaccines? Why do they fail in such a large number of seniors? And what signals in the safety in the Pfizer dossier did they have that could have anticipated the large number of deaths, hospitalizations, and now individuals who are permanently disabled in the United States after the COVID-19 vaccines? You can see that uh, I did at the AAPS meeting get emotional on the failure to treat our seniors uh, appropriately as an outpatient and have them come into the inpatient arena and never see their family members again. Do you know that even COVID recovered patients who can't get the illness again are not allowed in to see this, our seniors in the hospital and spend any time with them at the very end? Uh, that is cruel. It's scientifically unjustified. It's immoral and unethical, and it's still a practice going on today. I think people will write about this for decades in the future on how poorly managed this uh, social and uh, family calamity that COVID-19 is for our seniors 
and their loved ones, and particularly not recognizing natural immunity uh, or any uh, family member risks. Family members can't come in and provide anything uh, for their uh, loved ones, and they're in their last days and hours of life uh, in such a cruel and inhumane environment, and we can't raise enough awareness about this. We want each and every one of you listening to be activated. If you've been through this or you're confronting it, because we can do better and we have to help our hospital colleagues, administrators, and others break their grip of fear and have compassion, have understanding uh, that family members need to be together. Uh, Many patients are far beyond the window of infectivity and many loved ones have already had COVID-19, so it's not an issue. We can see each other without any worries of transmission of disease. Now we go on to mention the um, issue of uh, childhood vaccination. So that is happening this week and the uh, FDA will meet with Pfizer on the uh, younger age group, age age five to 11 vaccination. Here uh, we expect, just like with the age group of 12 to 15, no clinical benefit, meaning the children don't get sick with COVID-19. They'll be looking at antibody responses, um, a trivial number of uh, very minor uh, colds that happen in children. And uh, Pfizer will be prepared to push for approval. And we know that the lineup of speakers uh, from the public citizen arena includes many guests that have been on the McCullough Report in the past, including uh, businessman Steve Kirsch, patient advocate Kim Witzek, uh, former J&J scientist and regulatory expert Stephen Wiseman, and um, and uh, uh, epidemiologist, virologist, and really lead analyst on the vaccine adverse event reporting system, Dr. Jessica Rose. So that's going to be a lot of action, and we will see uh, one of the things that happens at these meetings, which is really important, is that points are memorialized, meaning they're in the minutes of the FDA meeting, no matter what the vote is. So we can always go back and say, listen, we told you. You know, we told you that point that children are far more likely to develop myocarditis, heart inflammation, uh, and be hospitalized with heart inflammation, be damaged by it, than ever get the respiratory illness and end up in the hospital. We have to get that into the record. I fully approve I fully believe that the Pfizer vaccine will be approved for ages 5 to 11. And as I told Chris Saucedo, you know, I have to lay my clinical judgment on the line. He asked me, would I do this? I think specifically he asked me if I had a child that age, would I have that child vaccinated? And you heard my answer, under no circumstances. Under no circumstances. I think it's important for doctors as well as leaders like you listening to this broadcast to be very clear, under no circumstances. That means I am telling the world that there is more harm than benefit. And as a doctor, I never apply any type of intervention that is going to harm my patient and their family members and society more than it will benefit. I never do that. That is part of the Hippocratic Oath. And that means each and every other person healthcare personnel or others are breaking that oath and they are participating, they are complicit with 
more harm than benefit now. Not in a group that can't decide for themselves. These children are too young to weigh out the risks. And sadly, we know some of the consequences of vaccination uh, include, in rare cases, immediate death, and there will be uh, children who are lost due to this vaccine. Well, we have a terrific show this week. I do bring onto the microphone for the first time on the other side, Dr. Lee for America, Dr. Lee Vliet from Tucson, Arizona. She is uh, the founder and executive director and the uh, really the spiritual leader of the Truth for Health Foundation. If you don't know about Truth for Health, go to truthforhealth.org and you'll see it's probably one of the most comprehensive faith-based organizations that is giving uh, a huge lift to America in terms of medical freedom, breaking medical tyranny, uh, clear information on vaccine safety and efficacy. It has the patient home treatment guide for early treatment of COVID-19 and a variety of important resources. So please check out truthforhealth.org. And then we finish on the backside with Dr. Michael Uphughes. Michael's been one of the early leaders in COVID-19. He's a very senior, experienced clinician, and he, he's going to give us an update on how he uses drugs in combination to reduce hospitalization and death. And uh, I tell you, I trust him implicitly. He really knows what he's talking about. Terrific physician, and it's great to get him on the air on the McCullough Report. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. I just had one last night. It's five o'clock in the morning. I got up. I had the most restful sleep. I tell you, I really believe in this supplement. It works wonderfully. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. It has a whole blend, a more comprehensive blend of various micronutrients and elements that are critical for the normal sleep architecture. Even when you sleep normally and have healthy sleep, which includes REM and non-REM sleep, you are so rested and feel so well the next day when you wake up. And that's how I feel right now. Cup of coffee, doing the McCullough Report. So go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo section, type in out loud for 20% off your next order of Healthy Cell. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone, on the other side of the microphone, Dr. Lee for America. That's Dr. Elizabeth or Lee Fleet, 
Dr. Valit is a graduate of William & Mary College in Virginia, where she received her bachelor's degree and then master's degree. She went on to the Eastern Virginia University School of Medicine, where she received her medical degree. She did her internal medicine residency at the same institution and then went off to the prestigious Johns Hopkins University, where she received additional training in biological psychiatry and all uh, the learning that has to do with complex drug prescription in patients with both medical, uh, neurological, and, and psychiatric disease. Dr. Vliet has been a leader in preventive health, women's health, and advocacy for patients with chronic illnesses throughout her career, many decades of service. And now, no surprise to America, Dr. Vliet is leading the charge to bringing not only truth, but bona fide aid and relief to those suffering with COVID-19, those who have had the disease now in the long COVID or post-recovery period, and those now who are facing the decision on vaccination, and unfortunately, those who have suffered vaccine injuries. Dr. Vliet, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. It is such an honor to be here with you. Your McCullough Report is just smashing all records in terms of education for the public. Honored to be here. Well, we had a great start and Dr. Lee for America and all the great work that Malcolm Out Loud has done for America has been tremendous. Do you know the, the viewership and the listenership to the site is absolutely skyrocketing and the resources that the site has put together for COVID-19 have been extraordinary. And one of them has been this close linkage to the Truth For Health Foundation. Can you tell our listeners about Truth For Health? Thank you. And I want to tell your listeners about the fact that you are our chief medical advisor, and we are so honored to have you leading the charge for medical truth. And all of us stand ultimately on God's truth, the sanctity of human life, the fact that life is in God's hands, not the government's, and that individual patients and their family members and their physicians have the right to decide all of their treatment to refuse or to use particular treatments. And so our foundation as an Arizona public charity actually is, is really the voice of the voiceless. We are the organization that is teaching patients and families where to get help, how to advocate for what they need, how to get reliable medical information. We have national and international advisors that are publishing peer-reviewed medical studies about the safety of various treatment options. We have our COVID patient guide that you and I have written for Truth For Health Foundation to guide people with a roadmap. Here's what you need to do. Here's when you need to do it. And here are the medicines. Here are the doses to discuss with your physician. We are a resource for all America and for people of the world looking for balanced, fair, truthful, medically sound information on how to stay healthy through COVID and beyond. You know, Tucker Carlson, I had a chance to spend time with him in the studio earlier this year. Tucker says that the only thing being censored right now is the truth. And so people though Truth for Health couldn't be better named where we really have an enormous need. And Americans know this. Somebody asked me today on an interview, they said, Dr. McCullough, why are people all over the world gravitating to Truth For Health and its advisors? And the answer is people can see scientific and clinical integrity a mile away. 
and they see those at Truth for Health and the related organizations. You know, we mentioned America Out Loud Talk Radio, but also the Association of American Physician Insurgents uh, is another related organization. There are less tightly related, but also high quality organizations out there trying to help patients, including American Frontline Doctors and the Frontline Critical Care Consortiums. But together, there's at least four major organizations that are strongly supporting early treatment for COVID-19, and also strongly fighting against censorship and reprisal. Do you know that when the American Medical Association uh, really sent out a gross uh, a display of misinformation on ivermectin, and that went to CNN and MSNBC, and they started pairing that, the AAPS sent a official letter to AMA saying, stop the COVID misinformation. And do you know when, when Sanjay Gupta went on with Joe Rogan, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, who had received monoclonal antibodies and ivermectin and prednisone, as he should have in the protocols that we have on the Truth for Health Foundation website, Joe Rogan was basically textbook of how it, be, uh, how it should be treated. He actually schooled Sanjay Gupta, who's not someone who is uh, undereducated. Sanjay, I, you know, he is a very well-educated, smart doctor, but it goes to show that right now the name of the game is staying up on the data, staying contemporary, and having courage to go beyond where the current boundaries are set by our public health agencies. I told Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle several months ago, I think our public health agencies are running about nine months behind on the data. I think you're exactly right. And not only that, there actually is quite a lot of evidence that the CDC is changing how they collect the data in order to exaggerate risk of early treatments and exaggerate the risk of certain medicines as opposed to under-reporting the risk of the experimental vaccines, for example. And we have many whistleblowers addressing that. In fact, one of our biggest challenges in the Truth for Health Foundation recently has actually been whistleblowers in South Carolina who have uncovered hospitals using different PCR cycle standards for vaccinated patients, lower thresholds, 25 to 28, for those who are vaccinated, which doesn't elevate the false positive rate, and using a higher cycle threshold, 45 cycles, for unvaccinated ER patients, which then ramps up the false positive rate, gets a COVID diagnosis on somebody who isn't sick, and then they get admitted and put on remdesivir and the downward path of spiral towards complications and premature death starts to happen. Well, it's true that every single uh, action the FDA is taking is uh, working to overstate the efficacy of the vaccines and understate the safety. And every effort that all agencies are making is to try to downplay, dissuade, chill, and actually frighten patients away from early treatment. And I told this, I told this to Tucker Carlson uh, earlier this year. I said, it's clear. I'm telling you, I was telling him as a doctor and he really got agitated. I said, there is an active suppression of all efforts on early treatment to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death in order to promote mass vaccination. He couldn't believe it back then, but I think now America does believe it and America doesn't accept it. And I can tell you right now, I just came back from the Liberty Council 
uh, a Liberty Conference, we can decide in Salt Lake City, Utah, we were in the Salt Palace and there were thousands of patients, thousands of individuals, uh, a giant crowd. I asked for a show of hands, uh, more than half had had COVID-19. And I can tell you, they've had enough. They want their family members to receive high quality early treatment, and they want fair information on vaccine safety and efficacy. It wasn't anti-vaccine at all. And we recognize many adult Americans have taken the vaccine, especially early on, uh, December, January, February, early March. Many, many people took the vaccine because they were frightened and they were told to take the vaccine. Now we've learned that the vaccine isn't anything that we thought it was. Uh, the 90% vaccine efficacy has basically eroded away next to zero with the Delta variant. And now in a recent paper by Iyer and colleagues from Oxford, published in preprint on September 29th, has shown after 120 days, the vaccines are effectively useless, that they have no benefit whatsoever. And now we cannot imagine what it's going to take to have an injection every three months or so with a booster that causes another showering of the organs in the body with the spike protein, another round of organ damage, another round of promoting blood vessel damage and blood clotting. How much can the human body take with uh, 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 ever continuing and unending boosters? Many have said, and in one of the presentations, I know there were tremendous quality pre presenters there uh, in the last two days, said, listen, it's a call right now to go ahead and stop the program. Go ahead and suspend all mandates uh, and uh, suspend the vaccine program. These formal calls are coming out. Well, and I'm seeing that in my practice. It's really striking how many patients I've personally had who had the vaccine early on when they didn't know the risk and they weren't informed. January, February, just had an 81-year-old patient I just evaluated last week who now has an elevated D-dimer of over a thousand. No one had checked it. She has skyrocketing thyroid antibodies. It's triggered an autoimmune response in this lady and multiple complications. All of her inflammatory markers are elevated. And this is, is now seven months after her vaccination. And this has been progressing. She's noticed a decline in her health. And now we are working to get her back on track. But this is not something that is rapidly necessarily finished in 120 days after the vaccine. The complications can go on long after the effectiveness, whatever it was, the effectiveness has worn off at 128 days based on the paper you just cited. Well, you know, in a, in a, a, a shocking paper presented by Dr. Bruce Patterson at the Rome Summit in September of 2021, he demonstrated after the respiratory infection alone that the spike protein, the S1 segment, which is the outer segment of the spine that's on the ball of the virus, that part of the, S, the spike protein that interlocks with the ACE2 receptor, that that spike protein is recoverable in human monocytes 15 months after the respiratory infection, at least in some individuals. And Dr. Patterson uh, hypothesize that no wonder some people have long COVID syndrome with the idea that parts of the virus can exist in the human body for 15 months. Now, listen to this. After the respiratory infection, the antibody rise to the spike protein is relatively modest compared to the vaccines, where the antibody rise is huge. 
I would yeah. infer, I would infer that those who take the vaccine have a much higher exposure to the spike protein than the respiratory infection because the respiratory infection, remember the body is trying to fight this off in the nose and the mouth and the trace tracheobronchial tree with the vaccine. It is a direct mainline systemic production of the spike protein in all somatic cells that receive the messenger or adenoviral DNA. It's a mosaic of cells that produce the spike protein in high concentrations because the messenger RNA has synthetic caps. And we've published with Dr. Tony Karagopoulos from Greece, demonstrating that the messenger RNA uh, from the messenger RNA products, as an example, are long lasting, that the messenger RNA lasts in the body for a very long time. It's not a single use messenger RNA. And there must be a large production of spike protein for a long period of time. No wonder people feel bad for many months afterwards. No wonder the D-dimers are elevated. No wonder we have other fingerprints that the virus, that the spike protein is indeed there, including elevations in C-reactive protein. And in a, yes. worldwide, in a worldwide conference today, Dr. Harvey Risch from the Yale School of Medicine has proposed that because the risks of myocarditis are so sufficiently high that all individuals under age 50 should receive a troponin test in the post-vaccination period to have surveillance for myocarditis. You know, that is a very good idea. And one of the Truth for Health Foundation projects, which you and I will be working on in the next few weeks, is to prepare a summary, a little guide booklet, similar to our early treatment guide. So now you've had the vaccine, what to expect? What are the tests that we need to be encouraging people to ask their primary care doctors to do in the post-vaccination period, but also the COVID long haul period? Because all of these markers indicate a need for ongoing treatment in an integrated way tailored to that patient and what their medical risks are. And that is not being done. I see patients from all over the United States and overseas. And one of the things I'm very struck by is that no one's monitoring patients for all of the very issues that you and I are talking about that we see clinically day in and day out. You know, I just uh, was on Dallas TV with Dr. Al Johnson, senior clinician and leader in COVID-19 treatment in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And Al made the observation that the COVID long haul syndrome is very similar to the long, in a sense, persistent symptoms after COVID-19 vaccination. We mentioned the early yes. hazards along the lines of cardiac, neurologic, immunologic, and GI, particularly uh, blood clots. And so individuals with severe headaches or shortness of breath really need to look for blood clots in the brain or lungs. And the FDA has warnings telling us to do that um, But uh, after the vaccine. Uh, but beyond that, uh, this protracted uh, illness and potentially accentuated by the boosters really needs uh, a follow-up plan very similar to long COVID. And so yeah. the hope is maybe these long COVID syndromes uh, clinics that are spawning up, particularly at academic medical centers, also become vaccine injury clinics. Because as we sit here today, we have over three quarters of a million Americans that have been injured and have had reports certified by the US CDC. Dr. Vliet, do you have any final comments for the McCullough Report? I just want to encourage everyone, join us at Truth For Health Foundation, www.truthforhealth.org sign up to be on our email alerts with the latest information and donate to support our public charity efforts to help people. We are providing our medical and scientific advisory services pro bono 
to help families and COVID patients with educational programs and treatment program options from around, around the world. So we encourage you to donate to support our work and sign up. We're here to be the voice of the voiceless, your voice in the COVID pandemic and your overall quest for optimal health and vitality and zest. Dr. Vliet, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to invite on the show for the first time, Dr. Michael Uphuse. Dr. Uphuse received his uh, undergraduate degree in biology at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, one of the top undergraduate universities in the United States. He went on there to receive a master's in anatomy, then went to Chicago and graduated from the Midwestern University School of Medicine. He uh, stayed in Chicago and went to the University of Illinois in Chicago and trained in family practice. And now he has uh, really a large uh, and national distributed practice presence in both Montana and uh, in Florida. I imagine some of this is due to uh, lifestyle and his recreation, but he's been able to combine both of those in a clinical practice. And uh, Mike has really become an expert in COVID-19. He's considered one of the national experts in treating COVID-19. Patients come to him from all over the country, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome him to the microphone. Dr. Arpuse, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, doctor. Well, I've been impressed with your leadership uh, in our clinical groups and our scientific groups. Can you explain uh, about uh, how you, as uh, someone who's a very busy practitioner, how you st- how you really fielded the problem of COVID nineteen as it came on the scenes last year, and what is your contemporary practice in managing acute COVID nineteen? Yeah, so I became interested uh, in this as you know, did colleagues like yourself, um, right when it hit, and I actually had COVID in December of two thousand nineteen, um, unbeknownst to me, and I 
I took Tamiflu at the time, then Zithromax and uh, some on Dancitron, some Zofran, because I was also nauseous. Um, and interestingly enough, we think that there's some efficacy um, with the use of uh, Tamiflu in treating uh, COVID, although that's not really the one of the mainstays that we use. But I became interested immediately because uh, it affected me personally, but we saw you know the entire world being affected by this. My osteopathic colleagues back in February of 2020 uh, we're starting to treat people with hydroxychloroquine based on a paper that was done and penned also by Dr. Fauci, interestingly enough, back in 2005 on the efficacy of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine um, in SARS-1. So that's how we became interested. In fact, some people were at that time using quinine water uh, to treat it as well. So I began using hydroxychloroquine for my patients uh, as early as February of 2020. And then, of course, President Trump mentioned that uh, he was taking it. And then, of course, there was media hype around that uh, in a disparaging way toward hydroxychloroquine. All of a sudden, uh, medicine that had been around since 1955 became uh, the villain when, in fact, none of us have ever seen side effects from this. And we've had patients on this every day for conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, decades and decades, never seen a side effect. So that began uh, my journey uh, into this. And then of course, I started to follow uh, America's frontline doctors and contacted them, uh, contacted folks affiliated with the FLCCC Alliance and um, picked up on some of their protocols as well as Dr. Zelenko's protocols. Well, that's terrific. So uh, what is it about you? I wanna know as a practitioner, why did you not hesitate while so many other doctors basically sat back and told patients there was no treatment? Yeah, I was, uh, to me, it's unconscionable that our colleagues have taken that stance. I'll tell you why. Uh, for 20 years, I worked on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in Northeastern Montana. And that's a very austere environment, little 12 bed hospital. Uh, but up on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, uh, we were not only doing bread and, you know, uh, bread and butter family medicine. We were also doing, you know, acute multiple trauma. We were doing our own C-sections there. We were doing appendectomies up there. So in going over the literature that was available at the time regarding hydroxychloroquine early on um, for this issue, um, you can imagine in, in terms of being on my fear radar, Prescribing something like hydroxychloroquine, now ivermectin, nizazoxanide, and things like that, uh, register a zero on my fear index. I mean, when you're up on a reservation, you have to face things like that. Um, there's absolutely zero fear in prescribing medicines that are exceedingly safe. They're effective, very effective for this condition. Um, so I didn't even think twice about prescribing this. Once the literature was there, which it is, um, and that's why I find it appalling that our, our colleagues are simply not reading the literature. When you have 65 studies now uh, on the use of ivermectin, 32 of those are randomized controlled trials, you're simply not reading. And well, so- You, you uh, know, it's interesting, to, Mike, you know, it's interesting is our colleagues who back in March said there was no treatment for COVID-19, they're still saying it now. 18 months later, our colleagues are still saying there's no treatment for COVID-19. As you mentioned, 
uh, well over 60 total studies of ivermectin, well over 30 randomized trials, over, over 250 supportive studies for hydroxychloroquine. And you know, in my career, I had a similar experience. When I left University of Washington in Seattle, I went to rural Northern Michigan and I was up in the upper part of the lower peninsula. I had no subspecialist in town, me and another internist and a handful of family doctors. We managed uh, a large uh, rural population. And just like you, I had to make decisions. I couldn't, I couldn't wait for uh, lots of specialists to support me. And I learned to use all kinds of medicine. So of course we've been using hydroxychloroquine. When I trained at Pacific Medical Center in Seattle, that back in the 1980s, that was the only drug we had to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So we had all these people in the Northwest. So I was so used to using Plaquenil. It was actually prescription Plaquenil then. Hydroxychloroquine was a breeze to prescribe compared to so many other things I had in medicine. So like you, I had a fearlessness in working with medicines when we were faced with a potentially fatal disease. And like you, I recognized our only chance was to do something early. Absolutely. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Never looked back and uh, have now treated uh, just personally over 4,000 uh, people uh, for both prevention, early treatment, and even to be honest with you, late treatment uh, of COVID, even though I'm not working in the hospital environment. Many patients are, are coming to me now um, that don't want to go to the hospital because they know what they're going to face if they do go to the hospital, which is minimal treatment leading to nothing more than a ventilator. So uh, they don't want to be involved in any of that. Hey, Mike, let me ask you, uh, what's your experience in managing patients whose oxygen saturations at home start to dip below 94, below 92, or even in the 80s? Uh, are you comfortable in managing some degree of hypoxemia at home now? We, we have been. We've had to get uh, comfortable because people basically insist that they're not going to go to the hospital. It's not that they're drawing a line or, or trying to push me, but they you can tell they're really fearful about going into the hospital because they know that the treatment there is going to be minimal. Once they're admitted, they're not going to get monoclonal antibodies, which they should. They're not going to get ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or nitazoxanide, as they should. They're not going to get colchicine. They may get steroids. They probably will not get budesonide, however. They'll probably get methylprednisolone or something along those lines. Um, and they may get some anticoagulant therapy, and that's about it. And then oxygen support. We can give oxygen support at home if they're dropping into the high 80s. We can certainly... Um, prescribed supplemental oxygen. But then, of course, we're going to use combinations of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, colchicine. We can use methylprednisolone. I use budesonide nebulizer treatments. Uh, we use aspirin. We use ciproheptadine. We use pepsid. We use atorvastatin, fluvoxamine. I hit them with everything we've got in our armamentarium. And, you know, invariably, we've had these people turn around. So it's it's been a remarkable thing to, to be involved with. Um, and this is all being done outpatient, but you know, you're hitting people with sometimes an eight to 10 drug regimen outpatient, but you call them, you know, I keep in contact every 24, 48 hours. And it's amazing how quickly they turn around. You know, that's the key is uh, I say minimum of four to six drugs, but it may extend beyond that. I've got a cadre of patients that I'm managing right now. And uh, I have to tell you, I tell people one, it, it's a potentially fatal disease. So it's not a single drug that we must use drugs in combination. Uh, in fact, no single drug is a cure for COVID-19. We're trying to get them through this intense phase of the illness and on the back side of it. And then also that it's a long illness. I think the shortest course is about five days for a young person with maybe some background medical problems, 10 days for people our age. 
And uh, I can tell you, uh, seniors, those in their 80s, and I've managed people into their 90s, I prepare them for a 30-day course. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not going to go away quickly. And many will ask that right out of the right out of the gate, you know, how long can I expect to be sick? And if they come to me a week into the illness or 10 days, you're looking at you're looking at a month. I tell you, you you know, uh, the listeners are listening uh, to Dr. Mike Uphuse, who's probably one of the most experienced clinicians uh, in the United States, uh, who's extremely well grounded uh, and has a tremendous facility with the drugs, even some drugs that I have not used in my clinical practice. Uh, but I imagine at this point in time, uh, we are now nine months into the mass vaccination program in the United States. You must have had patients who are absolutely flabbergasted that they've come down with COVID-19 after being fully vaccinated. Well, they can't believe it. I treated several people um, uh, from California last week, actually, that had uh, come down with COVID and fully vaccinated and uh, post two weeks, the second vaccine, if that's if they want to split hairs on what fully vaccinated means. Uh, but, you know, as you've pointed out so many times and, and some of our other colleagues involved in this, um, the reason we're seeing such breakthrough is we're seeing Delta, Delta plus variant, you know, P1, gamma. So these original vaccines, I try to explain them, they weren't targeted against Delta. Therefore, we don't expect them to work as they were expected to work. So it's not surprising at all. And then the light goes on and they begin to understand that. Now, is it your experience that after vaccination that the illness is less severe or is about the same? Or I had people coming to me uh, last week with oxygen saturations in the high 80s. So, uh, you know, if they're if what they have to tell me is that they would be even sicker had they not been vaccinated, first of all, there's no way to determine that, but I don't call your oxygen saturations dropping into the high 80s a great vaccine success. I really don't. Uh, I, can, I consider it to be contrary uh, to a great success. And the CDC would agree with you. On October 12th, they put out the data. They had over 30,000 cases uh, spontaneously reported to them through um, a network of community health centers, not, not all of them, um, but over 30,000 who are fully vaccinated either died or were hospitalized. Sadly, 23% of those were deaths. And the vast majority were seniors over age 65. So um, at this point in time, if you had a senior in your practice, you know, 80% of our seniors over age 65 have taken one of the vaccines. Uh, what do you what do you tell them if they say, Doc, you know, we, uh, we're seeing this happen. It looks like the vaccines are failing. Uh, should I take a, a booster or should I hold out? What should I do? Yeah, I get that every day, actually. And um, of course, my response is, well, if one shot didn't work or two shots didn't work, why would a third at this point? And people come to, I'm sure you as well, but they come with almost a like a vaccine remorse because they start to do their own research on this topic and they find what's going on here, not to mention the side effects. And in those cases, uh, certainly we recommend ivermectin. Uh, I know in, in your lectures, you've pointed out one of the mechanisms by which ivermectin works is by binding to the spike protein. So uh, it's very useful for people that have been vaccinated and we put them on the prophylactic dose uh, and have them take it twice a week. Um, and then they ask, well, how long do I have to take that? And at this point, what we tell them is we're not sure indefinitely. So uh, ivermectin uh, twice a week. And then what about hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis? So we still use hydroxychloroquine and, you know, typically it's taking 
taken 200 milligrams a day for five days and then two tablets weekly thereafter. And of course, as you point out, um, and that's why a lot of these early studies may have been skewed or the, the media jumped on and skewed the data based on a single agent, as you had pointed out earlier, we're never suggesting take those alone. We always say, make sure you're taking your vitamin D 5,000 units a day. Make sure you're taking vitamin C with your quercetin because vitamin C enhances the absorption of quercetin every day. And then of course your zinc, 50 milligrams. Very simple things you can take along with these prophylactic agents like ivermectin hydroxychloroquine. And uh, we've seen remarkable results with this. You know, I think those can be modulated too, according to risk periods. Uh, but one of the things I have really turned on in terms of my practice recommendations, uh, and we've had some postings on America Out Loud McCullough report on this, is the use of uh, oral and nasal uh, virucidal agents, uh, and that includes dilute povidone iodine, uh, oral uh, washes and nasal spray, uh, dilute hydrogen peroxide with luke oils, uh, iodine in it, um, uh, 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 oral gargle, and then nasal nebulization. One can even use sodium hypochlorite in the mouth, uh, uh, which is actually household bleach, very, very dilute. Uh, gargle it and spit it out. It's used actually for other viral gingivitis, uh, cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus gingivitis supported by the American Dental Association. So there's a range of things we could do. We think povidone iodine is the best and it's supported by a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues from Bangladesh, 606 individuals. Mike, they were coming down with COVID-19. They had just tested positive and they blasted the nose and mouth with dilute povidone iodine compared to just a saline control. And they aborted the infection 75% of the time. Well, that's amazing. You know, last week was the first time my patients actually came to me and said, uh, do you recommend uh, these gargles and um, nasal rinses as well? And uh, of course it has become a part of the FLCCC. I had heard you talk about it as well. I didn't know where that uh, the study from. I didn't know the study uh, came from Bangladesh, uh, but many people uh, are using this uh, based on some of the um, information you've actually put out. They mentioned your name, and uh, and I said by all means. I mean that's where it's sitting first before it gets down deeper and infects you know the lung tissue, uh, which is again why the vaccines aren't working because they weren't uh, they were never targeted uh, to prevent. Uh, this from happening, transmission from happening originally. So uh, it's interesting to see that simple measures like this that are, that are read readily available to anybody uh, can be used. So I've actually used that to modify my um, general practice recommendations. So tomorrow I'll have a ton of patients in the office and this has come up in e each one of them. But what I recommend now is for the susceptible. So people who have not had COVID-19, so they've either been vaccinated or not, but they haven't had the respiratory illness, on days they leave the house to go ahead and do that uh, twice a day, and let's just say povidone iodine uh, dilute as the base, two teaspoons of povidone iodine or betadine in six ounces of water, uh, gargle it, uh, spit it out, then follow it with scope or Listerine to clear out the mouth, and then just use a nas nasal spray bottle up in the nose and then snort it out because it kills the virus on contact and certainly reduces the viral load. Uh, to do that twice a day on days uh, that one leaves the house and goes out shopping or to a restaurant. If you don't leave the house and there's no contact, there's no reason to, to do it. And then when one's actually exposed to COVID-19, let's say you go to a wedding and say, oh boy, somebody had COVID-19, 
go ahead and do it for four days for the next three days as a post-exposure prophylaxis. And then during acute COVID-19, I follow the chowdhury protocol. In the first few days, we blast it every four hours. And I can tell you, it has worked. Now we use other things. I don't slow down. We use monoclonal antibodies in the seniors, use the sequenced uh, drugs uh, that you mentioned. And I can tell you, I am so happy with how the infection, Delta has been tough to treat in my uh, um, viewpoint, but I've been so pleased how recently, I mean, in the last month, since we've really come on with this, that we've been able to turn the tide. And, you know, patients love the idea of using betadine or uh, hydrogen peroxide uh, with a little Lugol's iodine. They love it because they can control it themselves, Mike. They don't need a prescription and they feel like they're doing something important. Uh, it's way more intelligent, in my view, than using hand sanitizer. You know, people have been focused on hand sanitizer. Everywhere you go, hand sanitizer. It's an infection of the nose and mouth for three to five days before it invades. Do you have any final words for our audience? No, I think, you know, if we could repeat that one more time, doctor, I think that's, uh, that's brilliant. Again, two teaspoons of, is it 10% betadine? Just 10, yeah, just the standard betadine you pick up at the pharmacy or on Amazon, the brown liquid, uh, standard concentration, two teaspoons in six ounces of water. So it's like a juice glass and you can use it. You can gargle it and then use a nasal spray, probably keep it for a day. You could use it in the morning and evening, then pitch it out and do the next day. If you want to make a longer lasting solution, you have to use sterile water uh, in order to do that. Um, but uh, you know, I think just regular tap water and do that. And some of my patients have actually, you know, made a solution, they've labeled it. And, you know, a lot of patients at this point in time, they feel this is a war. And this is a basically, this is a war um, uh, munition, if you will, in the household, and people are willing to take matters into their own hands. And what a beautiful thing, you know, it's not just a trial by chowdhury, but there are a whole series of uh, preclinical studies done by high quality uh, dental research units all over the world showing there's no doubt about it, this virus is absolutely zapped by povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide or sodium hypochlorite. It is zapped. I mean, you can basically drop concentrations to zero, just like the virus is effectively killed by hand sanitizer. The problem is it's not a hand infection. It's an infection of the nose and mouth. Okay. Well, Mike, listen, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. You're listening to The McCullough Report.